Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Jason Lee, reporter with the Deseret News and co-host of the Voices of Reason podcast. Michelle Quist, columnist with the Salt Lake Tribune, and Matt Canham, senior reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. Thank you so much, all of you, for being with us tonight. Just so many interesting things happening this week in politics, national level, state level. But I want to talk about a topic first that uh, has really uh, been front of mind and front and center in the country, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial. People across the country, all through the state of Utah, have been watching this closely, as we should. Uh, I, I want to start with you, Jason, on this, this trial, which lasted three weeks. The jury was in deliberations for 10 hours. Many of us were glued to the TV sets, but you wrote such an impactful piece this week about the trial itself and the personal nature of this trial on people across this country. Talk about that for just a moment, particularly considering that very important personal aspect. Well, for me, as, uh, as an African-American male, I could see myself in George Floyd. And as I thought of this trial, I said to myself, you know, this, this, he could have been me. Uh, under the right circumstances. And so I wanted to at least convey those ideas to people so that they could probably understand now a little better why this was so important to black people all across uh, America. Because if you can see yourself, there's empathy there that you might not otherwise have. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. You can actually put yourself in that circumstance. But it also is a chance out of this tragedy, we can use this as uh, momentum going forward to make some uh, really important changes and this is actually an opportunity for the police community and law enforcement to make their lives easier by taking some steps to prevent these kinds of incidents and to build a better sense of community and trust of the uh, law enforcement community with the people that they serve. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Everyone should read your article and, and comments from your family members as well. It put a really great context on this, as Jason just did, Michelle, as well, about what this means going forward, because that's the important, pivotal part about this. Right. The reforms, you know, are, are really an important part of this. Of this, The sad thing for me is that, you know, our black community, our, our neighbors and friends feel that they, that this is the justice that they finally, you know, that they finally felt justice from, from this verdict. This is not the justice that we need and that we want. The justice is not being there in the first place. The justice is not being treated disproportionately or or being racially identified. Or, you know, that's the justice that we need, not a, a, a guilty verdict for, for doing something that you shouldn't have done in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's where we need to be. Well, this is leading to some reforms, Matt, uh, in, this, in the state. Let's talk about some of those because uh, the governor did have a ceremonial bill signing this week. He signed uh, numerous pieces of legislation. Talk about a couple of those and the impact and significance of all these bills coming together. Yeah, the timing was uh, an accident that he had the ceremonial bill signing the day after the verdict came in. But if you think back, this came from uh, a summer of protests, a lot of serious conversation and a series of bills in our session in January. And some of these bills will increase training for mental health, uh, de-escalation. Mm -hmm. It will make it so a law enforcement officer is not supposed to shoot someone if that person is suicidal and can only hurt himself or herself. There is a bill that will require the state to track use of force, which I 
find to be disappointing that our state doesn't track that data already, uh, but this will allow us to know more about when police pull a weapon, aim it at someone, fire or not, where you can see, are there things we can do to change these circumstances before there are um, instances with law enforcement and the public that we don't want to see? Mm -hmm. Jason, I'm curious how you think that particular bill, and, and the one that Matt was just was talking about is Angela Romero's House Bill 162. And the, the training was this, on mental health, other crisis intervention responses, arrest, control, and de-escalation. Those are the areas of training uh, that are going to be areas of emphasis going forward. Put, put that into perspective, the impact you see that ha having, and what is needed next? I would say, let's start with the mental health part first. Police are asked to do so much, and, and to be honest with you, I, I think they're asked to be too much for them to be effective at all of what they do, and, and their job is so important to every community where they serve. So if there's a chance to maybe use some of the money uh, that police are, uh, get and maybe add to it uh, some mental health advocates that they can call into situations when it's possible to help uh, de-escalate those situations and it'll be someone who has better training in how to make those situations potentially come out a little less violent. And this helps, obviously, the police. It helps our community. That's a great chance to do, really do something well. De-escalation is so important. There, I've been in, uh, on this earth a long time. I can't say that I've ever been in a situation where I felt threatened enough that I needed a gun. And I've been in a lot of places in this country and around the world. If you're a police officer, I know that it's, it's very tough. You don't know what's going to happen in, in, in various situations. However, I do think there are opportunities if you put yourself in the situation, not as a police officer, but as a human being, how, how would you handle that then? Chances are you wouldn't have a gun. You would have some other way. You'd use uh, a better mental approach, a more psychological uh, you know, strategy, so that you could figure out a way to make sure that everything happens in a way that's nonviolent. The more we work on not using force that puts people in the hospital that potentially help, um, makes them lose their lives, that's the way we need to go. We need to figure out ways to solve things peacefully as, at, at any time possible, rather than you, uh, like Matt mentioned, having to draw your gun. Once you draw your gun, things are out of control because now anything can happen. If you can figure out a way not to have that happen, that's better for all of us. Yeah, what I hope these reforms accomplish with the training um, is a, a different expectations on what is reasonable, on the amount of reasonable force to use in certain situations. I hope police, I hope the expectations of, of that for police becomes different and, and, you know, because it's not reasonable to shoot somebody in the back as they're running away or to do, use chokeholds or to put your, you know, your, your knee on the neck. So I hope the training, um, you know, results in different behavior, which results in different reasonableness standard for their conduct of, uh, of what they become liable for. Mm -hmm. So Matt, I want to get to these, these key points here because uh, it does get to law enforcement now when it comes to that training and those kinds of things. I want to read a, a quote from uh, our Department of Public Safety. Lots of people put out statements after the, the verdict came forward, but this is one I want to get your comments on because it really requires a lot of effort from a lot of people, including law enforcement, as we were just talking about. From the Department of Public Safety, they said, over the last year, uh, we have worked to build important relationships with stakeholders in the police reform movement spurred by Floyd's death. 
Our outreach within the multicultural, social justice reform, and religious communities in our state has led to numerous codified reforms, both in policy and law, to which law enforcement officers statewide are now held accountable. Talk about that statement and if, if the message is being received that we've just been, been hearing about from all of you today. What that statement shows is that Floyd's murder was a turning point in our nation. It happened in Minneapolis. It's an impacting things in Salt Lake City and in Utah. And what law enforcement is doing there is acknowledging that they have a problem, that they have communities that they interact with that do not trust them, that they need outreach, that they need to listen, that they need to think about, are there better ways to do the job that we are asking them to do? And I think, you know, what we need to consider as a society that we're still in the starting point of this. This verdict doesn't end anything. These bills that were signed do not end anything. These are ongoing conversations. As the Department of Public Sa Safety rightfully points out, we still have a ways to go. We do. I hope there's, it's an acknowledgement, you know, of a problem. I'm, I'm still not convinced. You know, our, our, our congressional leaders um, heralded the, the verdict as justice served. I think if, if the verdict had been not guilty, they would have said justice was served, the system worked. There's still not this, you know, Representative Owens specifically, you know, he said justice was served, but you know, earlier this year, he said there's no black and white issue. It's just a it's just a problem of how we treat each other. There is a black and white issue. And until we can acknowledge that, I don't think that these reforms are going to work. Mm -hmm. I want to jump in here real quick. Well, Michelle said I think that's a, that's a good point. However, I want to say that there's a lot of this means there's a um, this disconnect between police and the communities they serve because in Minneapolis, I hate to say this, Minneapolis got a lot of problems, obviously. They had a situation earlier when uh, a Somali-American uh, police officer shot and killed a white woman who actually called for help in police. She came up to her car. He shot across, across his partner and killed her. And she was obviously unarmed, and she was in her pajamas. And he, he ended up uh, being convicted as well. The police departments around this country need to not fear the people they deal with every day. I mean, there are some people who are bad actors. Certainly, you got to be careful. But they should not come into it with a sense that it's life or death every time, because we all know that that's not true. And the more they can work with figuring out uh, how to understand situations that don't have to involve them pulling a taser even, uh, certainly not a gun that can end someone's life right then and there, that's, we, we got to work harder at that. They have to work harder at that. And if the police can figure out ways to do it in a better fashion, they will solve a lot of their problems. They, they will uh, gain more trust and they will, the attitudes that they feel are happening won't necessarily be that way and, and there'll be more trust, there'll be more, uh, a better attitude toward them in general. And I, I want that to be the case because I know police officers work really hard and their lives are just getting harder and harder when these incidents happen. But in some ways, they can they can help themselves if they work hard enough at it. Mm -hmm. Critical conversation. I'm glad we're continuing it as well. Uh, I want to get to a, a political question uh, and some issues that have come up this week because it's interesting uh, when you talk about our elected officials, how they're responding to this, to so many other things. There is an organization out there that Cook Political Report puts out every year. It talks about states and how they're trending. More red, more blue, more purple, maybe. I want to talk about what happened in Utah, Matt, because this, this, this came out this week. And it's interesting, of course, um, Utah still on the red side, right. but maybe less so is the 
the interesting question. So I want to talk about a couple of our districts here because the, the, the Cook Report came out and the way it works is they, they take the last two presidential elections, they find the average in the country for every congressional race and then they compare every district by how it compares to that average. And, and Utah, uh, numbers went down just a little bit from, uh, from right. 2017. So uh, let, let's talk about a couple of those, like uh, the CD1 with uh, Congress, was Congressman Blake Moore. Uh, this is a plus 20 R. I just want to explain that really quick. That means 20% more Republican leaning than your average district around the country. What do you make of that, that particular district considering uh, he won that, by, that particular district by 39 points? I think this is a stat that is skewed in Utah heavily by the, um, the fact that the last two presidential elections involved Donald Trump. And in Utah, if you think about uh, Donald Trump's first race in 2016, we had the Evan McMullen independent factor, which depressed uh, the Republican vote. And in 2020, while Donald Trump did better in Utah, there are still a number of Republicans who were just not enthused about his candidacy, who felt that his personal behavior was a step beyond where they were willing to go. And oddly enough, these huge numbers, I mean, as you said, a plus uh, 20 district is one where Republicans are not exactly sweating a November election. Uh, it, that's, that's low, that is artificially low in Utah. Yeah, it's so interesting. Let's talk about a couple of these factors, Michelle, because you're, you're involved in this. You've run for office yourself, which is so interesting uh, when you see these numbers. There are other things at play here. I mean, you, 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 is, is it right to say that the state is more blue or is it just we're just a little less red? Um, I, we're a little less red, I, I would think. I don't think Utah's ever gonna be blue, um, but like as Derek Brown, the, the GOP, Utah GOP chair said just this week, the worries here aren't necessarily national issues. The worries should be about Arizona, what, mm -hmm. what, you know, what's happening in Arizona, what's happening in your, you know, in your district. Um, our, our voters are getting younger. People are moving into the state from California, and everybody complains every day. I hear all, the, all these <laughs> California people are moving here. You know, they're not. California Republicans necessarily moving here, they're Californians moving here. You know, so that's gonna trend things differently. And you know, the issues that are important to people um, are gonna also, you know, trend, trend perhaps trend more people more uh, politically liberal. Yeah, it's, it's certainly happening. Because if you add that, Jason, to what Matt was saying just a moment ago, there are other forces at play on the political spectrum also. You, you mentioned the Donald Trump factor. Right. There, there might have even been from the, the run that Mitt Romney had uh, bef before mm -hmm. that that impacted that 2017 race as, as well. What do you make of that, Jason, uh, with the sort of the changing face of the Republican Party in the state of Utah and how that's impacting these, these plus numbers? You know what I, I, I recall when I was first moving to Utah, it, it was such a red state, right? And it still is very red. Make no mistake about it. However, there used to be uh, a better sense of. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't. It was less red because if you go down to the capital, every other for many years, uh, going back probably uh, to the early part of the, uh, the 20th century, every other governor was a Democrat, leading up to Scott Matheson. But after that, it's, it's been very exceptionally red. So there was a time, uh, or for a very long time, that the state could see things in a more liberal fashion. Uh, and, and these are the, many of the citizens uh, and their families are still here. So I think we just went, to, we, we are in a situation where it's skewed a bit. But uh, as Michelle and, and Matt have said, you know, we, there's always a little kind of give and take. I don't know that it's ever going to go purple, but I do think it's 
you know, maybe not rose red, but a little, uh, you know, darker than that even. Maybe we got a little rosé going. <laughs> well, no, I guess rosé and going to red. I'm sorry. That's what I should say. Well, County sorry. conventions have recently yeah. had um, their elections for leadership. It's a leadership election this year. Um, the State Central Committee in Salt Lake, Kim, uh, Salt Lake County was just elected. Um, only a handful of the ultra-right mm. Um, state central committee members kept their seats. Most of the members elected to state central committee are moderates. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think it's it's just trending towards that. Yeah, it does seem to be. Let's talk about the one district that's the closest, Matt, and that's right. the fourth congressional district. And this, this Cook report, uh, it was a, a plus six, six percent higher Republican than your average across the country. But that's one where Burgess Owens won by one point. Is that, yes. is that district, I mean, is that, is that high? Would you say six, six points high is high for that district? It's a high for that district if representative, former Representative Ben McAdams is running. Yeah. I mean, I think the interesting part of that fourth district is Mia Love squeaked in, but then she won pretty handily. You know, Ben McAdams squeaked in, and then Burgess Owen squeaked in. I do think it's about matchups and it's about race. Uh, the race is about matchups in that area, and that if it's, you know, depending on who runs against Burgess Owens going forward, it might not be as close, but also, and I think this is where you're going to turn this to, that district is not the next district. That's mm -hmm. the old one. We're gonna mm -hmm. draft new ones. So I'm so curious, anyone say, is that district gonna become safer R after redistricting or? I'd be stunned if it wasn't say, safer R. I was gonna R. say, definitely <laughs> gonna be safer R. They, I, they are tired of having these down to the wire uh, elections they barely lost the last time. They barely won the time before that. It's, it's yeah, they, they got to figure out a way. And sadly, see, to me, this is, this is what's wrong with our system. It's game. Because whoever is in charge, whether Democrat or Republican, they make it so that these are districts they can't lose rather than give, making a true sense of whatever is happening in their state. If, if they just ran them in a way that was just uh, more about making the districts even rather than these crazy-looking uh, you know, snake-like things they got going just to make sure that they have the, the right amount of uh, Republicans in those districts in this case. That's that's not fair to the voters, I don't think. Yeah, and they're going to have to walk a, sorry. A fine line there. They're going to have to. They're going to have to. They're going to have to walk a fine line in in how they're doing this because the public is watching. And you know, there's we're going to go. Ten years ago, we had the donut hole right. argument, right. and you know, and, and it ended up being all these weird, you know, representatives representing people in in North Salt Lake and and St. George at the same time. Um, the eyes the eyes are going to be on them. And but again, you know, they're they're going to do what's politically expedient. Well, and I think. The population growth is going to make it easier for them, honestly. We've had a huge increase in people on the southern edge of Salt Lake County, mm -hmm. northern part of Utah County. Those are conservative parts of our state. And so it's not hard to make a very reasoned argument that that fourth district just needs to grow just a little bit. And that growth, that's going to be Republican votes. Mm -hmm. Well, this is why my friend Ted Wilson used to say that politics is the only sport. Right. It's yeah. just so interesting to, to watch this because I think you're right about those lines. Uh, can, can we switch to the federal level? Because these things are at play there, too, these same dynamics. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting an article you wrote, Matt, this week uh, where, where Mike Lee was actually uh, comparing uh, Barack Obama uh, to Ted Cruz based on the policies coming out of D.C. this week. Right. So he was asked on one of his online town halls by someone to rate Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. And he was sitting 
sitting next to Chris Stewart and the two of them laughed for a minute and then decided to answer the question. And that's the way that uh, Senator Lee decided to answer the question is that Joe Biden is making Barack Obama look like Ted Cruz. And this is something you hear a lot from Republicans on the federal level is that they are surprised that Biden is as aggressive as, as he is, as progressive as he is. This is they thought they might be getting a caretaker type president who was just going to keep things going for four years. And Joe Biden has not been that. He has pushed big agenda items, you know, two trillion dollars on an infrastructure plan. He has another one coming out next week. That's going to be another two trillion dollars uh, proposal. He did his one point nine trillion on the stimulus yes. bill. He is being aggressive, and that is surprising some Republicans. It, tr it truly is. And some of this uh, this effort is manifesting itself in other ways. A, a couple of big initiatives just this week I, I feel like we've got to talk about because Utah is going to be hit by this. So, uh, Michelle, earmarks. Can we talk about earmarks for just a second? Because this is what we're seeing on both sides of the aisle and uh, in the House and the Senate. This little bit of a divide. Earmarks right now are gone. There was a day where this is how... You know, you grease the skids of the political process, as some people said. Right. The ban's gone, but uh, the House has voted to to remove that ban. The Senate voted to keep it. Right. Right. No. And 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 Utah. You know, the 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 Utah. Um representatives that were, were for, you know, let's let's bring the earmarks back and, and Utah senators like, no, you know, this is this is good. Listen, I, I understand that the earmark argument, but until I mean, Republicans haven't been, you know, conservative in their spending for decades. And so until we can get back to conservative in spending as we're supposed to be, or even I would love to see a balanced budget amendment, which would never happen. I don't you know, I, I don't think they get any credit for saying, oh, you know, earmarks aren't great. Let's make sure that we don't use them. Let's stop spending or bring spending down just in general, you know, higher, higher conversation here. Just so people get how this works, right? This earmarks are essentially where a member of Congress gets to pick a pet project and put their name on it and say, look what I did for the people back home. Mm -hmm. The House Republicans voted to bring them back. The Democrats in both the Senate and the House are bringing them back. It's the Senate Republicans led in part by Mike Lee, who said, we're not going to vote to bring them back. But... This is Washington, it's politics, it's not set in stone. That was a non-binding vote. Mm -hmm. Senate Republicans can still get earmarks. And what you will see happen in Utah is yes, Mike Lee's name might not be on a project and Mitt Romney's name might be on a pro not, might not be on a project, but none of Utah's members of the House have said they're not gonna ask for them. So you'll get these pet projects done by House members. Mm -hmm. They will be in a big vote that will come before the Senate. They'll approve it. And so Utah will still get its fair share. Mike Leibowitz won't put his name on it. Yes, that. and it's, it's instructive that they're not even calling it earmarks now. This is congressionally directed spending. That's right. right? Which is the way, which, <laughs> which is true. So, so Jason, uh, our, our elected officials uh, have come out with statements. It's interesting, Mitt Romney himself talked about earmarks are rife with waste and abuse. So he and Mike Lee both actually signed a letter saying that they would stand against it. But what do you make of, of that, of, of kind of that position and where it puts the state of Utah, particularly given what Matt just said, which is it's not exactly binding on them they can still find ways I think this is what was politically expedient for both of those gentlemen because I, I believe they can say that but they know they're gonna lose they know that they're coming back or there's a pretty high likelihood of that to happen personally I, I think I can understand why they would say that it's as, as Romney described it there's always been a lot of uh, waste and these pet projects some of them are useful but some of them are, are the kinds of projects that didn't necessarily need to happen at such a cost but since spending doesn't seem to be an issue anymore, 
I don't know how they can get past the fact that the Democrats are so heavily in favor of it, as, since right now they control both houses to uh, some degree, even though it's a very close one, particularly in the, uh, the Senate. Uh -huh. And this is what I'm saying. Republicans are going to keep losing credibility. We can't say we're conservative if one of the one of the, the the main planks is is fiscal responsibility and limited spending until we start limiting our spending. Uh -huh. What kind of campaign is, issue is this, Matt? I mean, particularly given there seems to be a little bit of a showdown, House and the Senate, even in our own state. I think it will actually serve all of our members, no matter what they do. Yeah. And this is like, it's a win, 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 all the way around. Mm -hmm. If you're Mike Lee, you pulled a fiscal conservative, you stood your ground. But if you're Blake Moore, and you're a new member of Congress, and being a backbencher in the House, when the Democrats are in control, what are you going to tell people you did? If you could say, I brought this project to Davis uh -huh. County, yeah. or I brought this project to Ogden, I did this, my name's on it, I'm mm -hmm. the one that got this for you. That is helpful for a politician. There's a reason earmarks were around. Yeah. I think it will serve both of them. Go ahead, Michelle. I was just gonna it's, say, it's how Jim Hansen yeah. used to get so many things. Right. Yeah. Well, so it is, and if we look at the state of Utah, when, when Senator Bob Bennett was here, we see building after building in the state, Absolutely. infrastructure projects that were largely funded yeah, and and I and I'm just gonna say it again. They the the you know if you want to be Republican, if you want to keep to your principles, let's let's limit our spending and be responsible about it. Okay, so so one final point on this. Uh, do you do you see Matt our our members of our House going back on that on their decision to go forward with? Uh, these They're going to ask for your marks. They're already collecting applications now. They're definitely okay. going to do it. I mean, okay. the one I didn't hear from is Representative Burgess Owens. He might. Um, be someone who doesn't seek them. I'd still would be surprised if he didn't at that point. But uh, John Curtis said he was against it, but he's still going to do it now that yeah. they're there. <laughs> um, but at that time, he didn't like the idea, but he's still going to ask for them too. Yeah, such an interesting issue. It's like when you say you're against term limits. I'm against, you know, I, I, or you're for term limits. Term limits are great, but I'm not going to apply them to me until everybody, yes. you know, gets to use them. <laughs> now that is an interesting point. It's true. Thank you all for your really great insights tonight on some really important and critical issues. Thank you for listening to The Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.